Good morning, East Lake. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing well today. Um, I'm Kristen Middleton. I am a member of East Lake here. I come here with my husband, John, and we have two young daughters. You may remember me from April. I gave a talk called God and Mental Health, and um, Brent's asked me to speak again. Um, he's on vacation with his family. Um, they're going to be back. He'll be back next weekend, so he'll be giving our talk next Sunday. Um, but today, um, we're going to talk about fellowship in the face of isolation. And before I get started, I just wanted to point out this beautiful scenery. Um, there's a show going on here, uh, Romeo and Juliet, so that's what that is. Um, and also, if you're a first-timer here or you've just started coming to Eastlake, we're really happy to have you. Um, so thanks for joining us, and thank you to everybody for being here today. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what fellowship is and isolation. Um, that's plague. Isolation is actually a national epidemic um, that's plaguing our country right now, despite the fact that there's social media, despite the fact that we're connected through things like Instagram and Facebook. Um, there's actually a lot of disconnect happening, and that's been um, very much recorded now and studied, and we have scientific research that even backs that up. Um, but I think that God really intended us to connect with one another in meaningful ways, um, and that the way that we become the people that God created us to be is all I mean by that is um, when you find a person and, or a handful of people that you can become emotionally vulnerable with um, and process through emotions or process through your challenges and adversity. Um, that's what is meant here. And I think that we'll find in the scripture that I point to today how Jesus um, really intended for us to connect with other people. Um, and furthermore, we really see Jesus building community throughout the gospel. He builds community, he brings people into community, and through those relationships, through that fellowship, that's where transformation happens. So we're going to explore that. A um, little bit about me. Um, I am a wife, as I mentioned. My husband, John, and I live here in Richland. We love coming to Eastlake. And um, I have two toddlers, Addie, who's two and a half, and Sage is 11 months old. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about um, some adversity that I faced this summer um, and how I became somewhat isolated. Um, I'll get to that in a moment. But um, <clears throat> I think that certainly in my background as being a teacher and a school administrator, I had a chance to learn a lot about relationship. Um, and to see the value in it. Um, but I, I wanted to tell you something, which is that we, we actually just moved to the Tri-Cities a year and a half ago. So I grew up on the East Coast, and I met my now husband while we were out there. He was working for a company out there. And we started our family out there, and we didn't have um, many, we didn't really have any family actually close to us. So we had to build our own family um, through our church and friendships and by other means. Um, and then we came out here to visit um, John's family. Um, <clears throat> he's part of the Middletons. And I don't know if you've gone pumpkin picking lately, but that's the Middleton Fall Festival, the Middleton Farm. So he's one of six boys. And um, 
a lot of their families and their kids live out really powerfully like God was calling us to move here and to raise our kids closer to family. Um, and I'm so glad we made that move because it's made a big difference in my life. Um, I'll just say a caveat, which is I'm, I don't think you have to be close to your, your kin, your first of kin, in order to feel family or, or fellowship. Um, family can be non-blood-related people as well. So keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> so with that in mind, I want to jump right into Genesis. So Genesis is in the beginning of the Bible where we learn about creation um, and God's creation of earth and God's creation of animals and people. And we'll pull up the slide from Genesis one twenty-five to 27. This is the New Living Translation. Um, God made all sort of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And Genesis continues, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Um, they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the emphasis here, and the reason I'd like to draw our attention to Genesis is to emphasize the fact that God did not make just one human being to live among animals. Um, he made two with the intent that there would be more humans. So again, this idea that we are to live with other people. And I don't think it just means you have to find a partner, not at all. Some, for some people, that's our path, and for other people, that's not your path necessarily. Um, the point here is that God designed us to be social creatures and to have other people to live and grow and commune with. Um, and communion is a word I'd like to talk a little bit about here. Whether with other humans, communion is designed or is defined as the sharing and exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings. So the, the sh the exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, and especially when that exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Um, <clears throat> to be clear, I'm not suggesting that people should constantly be connecting to others and you need to have constant connection. I think that would be overwhelming and probably unhealthy. I see a lot of value in some alone time. Um, it's great to, great to be alone at times for renewal, uh, for prayer, for rest, maybe meditation, um, perhaps to explore your own creativity. Um, so there's value in being alone. But I want to differentiate healthy alone time from actual isolation, um, which is where you're really cut off from other people and really cut off from the opportunity to emotionally be vulnerable with another person. <clears throat> or people. Um, there's a phenomenon called loneliness in the crowd. Um, and this might make sense to you because maybe you've even experienced this. Loneliness in the crowd can happen um, when we go through the work week. We've been in a crowd of people, quite literally. We've been around others. Maybe, for example, you are a substitute teacher 
and you are in an environment where you don't know the kids you're teaching, you don't really know the staff you're working with, and you're just kind of going through the motions of work, you know, handing out sheets, whatever, or maybe you're in a temp job in an office where you don't know people, or maybe it's a job that you've been in for years, but you just go through the work week kind of interacting on a surface level with, with your coworkers, with people you meet at the supermarket, with your spouse possibly, or your roommates. Um, but you're not making any deeper connections. That's what loneliness in the crowd is. You can be around people, but not have much meaningful connection going on. Um, with regard to this national crisis of isolation, um, science tells us that quite literally, you know, God designed us to be social creatures. Science backs that up. Science tells us that. Um, Dr. Emma Sapala is this amazing researcher and scholar who looks at emotional intelligence and looks at social and emotional issues and development. <clears throat> Excuse me. She's a co-director um, over at Yale University on emotional research. And Yale's my alma mater. And I, I really admire this woman a lot and the, the work she's done. She says that social connection is just as critical as being to being healthy as eating well, sleeping well, and exercising. When I heard that, that resonated for me a lot, but I thought, wow, that's amazing. So as important as it is for me to eat well, um, you know, to get a walk in with my kids in their stroller or to try and get some exercise and to get a good night's sleep, which I have to say only happens every now and then because <laughs> our toddlers keep us up at night a lot. But as important as those things are, which you probably already knew, um, having good quality relationships is equally important. And I, I think that's really fascinating. Um, we learn um, from this scientific research that statistics now show us that loneliness is on the rise. So it's actually been categorically looked at. There are more and more people who feel isolated um, in our society. And I think it's no surprise, it is no surprise that Jesus even shows us this. So in the Bible, um, Jesus spends 40 days alone in the wilderness. He's in the Judean desert all by himself, and it's there completely isolated where um, the enemy, and if you're new to Christianity or new to this concept, the enemy is what I um, refer to as Satan. Um, and if you're not kind of on board with that concept yet, that's okay. Um, consider this, you know, I think we can all agree that there is negative energy out there, that there are evil forces. Um, so keep that in mind. So Jesus is alone in the Judean desert in the wilderness for 40 days, and that's where the enemy goes to tempt him. And nowhere else in, in the gospel do we see um, the enemy kind of attacking Jesus. It's only when Jesus is completely isolated, that's when Satan goes after him. So Jesus is tempted multiple times, and Jesus, son of God, does resist. He says, no, 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 and he resists uh, the enemy. And I think what's also uniquely important here to, to know about is that right after Jesus's time alone in the wilderness, tempted by um, the enemy, he jumps right into ministry. So it's literally right after that period of isolation, Jesus must 
have um, just this really amazing realization that if he's going to do the ministry that Father God sent him to do, he's going to need his disciples. And so right after that alone time, that long period of isolation, is when he starts to collect and bring on board his 12 disciples. So he gets right into ministry and must just, he really understood that the value of community, the value of having people there for him, building community, um, was going to be a powerful resource for, to help him to be in fellowship if he was going to spread the message of God's love. <clears throat> so back to our, our scholar here, Dr. Emma. Um, she has this really important information that I want to share with you. She, she, in her research, she found that despite its importance, sociological research suggests that social connection is waning at an alarming rate in modern American society. Household sizes are decreasing, and biological family and friends are more geographically and emotionally disconnected from one another than ever before. Consequently, loneliness, isolation, and alienation are rising and represent one of the leading reasons that people seek psychological counseling. A revealing sociological study found that in 2004, the average American reported having only two close others with whom to confide, while nearly 25% of Americans reported having no one at all. Hmm, this is really interesting. Um, so I can relate to these statistics myself um, because I've been on both sides of the fence. In other words, um, I'm 35 now, and for most of my 20s, um, I was working on my career on the East Coast, and I was more or less single for a good um, part of those years. And I definitely experienced isolation, sometimes real feelings of um, loneliness and um, just even at times, despair. Um, and I, it's true that I wasn't near family of origin, and I felt isolated, particularly on the weekends. Um, sometimes I'd, I'd be okay during the work week. Uh, like, I have this whole... I would not even feel like waking up on a Saturday morning because I felt like I have this whole, you know, weekend ahead of me. What am I going to do with my time? I'm all by myself um, I don't want to go out to the bars with friends at night. I'm more of a homebody. I, that doesn't feel fulfilling for me personally, so I in a few minutes. But the long story short on that is I was able to feel less isolated um, once I adopted a dog um, and had a, a real loving connection with a pet. And then I also um, joined a church. But more on that later. Um, <clears throat> maybe you have you know, felt isolation before. Maybe you are living away from your family of origin. What I want you to know and what I want you to take hope in is this idea that fellowship and family and meaningful connection, those can happen in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. You don't necessarily have to be connected to your blood relations in order to have family. Um, family can be friends. Um, who support you, who lift you up, who encourage you. Family can be um, a support group. Maybe you're in a 12-step program. Um, maybe you find family and fellowship um, in an AA group or an Al-Anon group 
um, or any kind of support group like Celebrate Recovery. There's all kinds of ways to find fellowship. So let's dive a little deeper into some of the benefits of meaningful social connection. When you have positive social connections of good quality, and what I mean by good quality is, you know, you feel it in your gut. It's not perfect, but basically these are people or this is a person who you feel it in your gut. They care about you and they want the best for you. That's what good quality means. When you have positive social connections of good quality, you have 50% increased chance of life longevity, stronger immune system, lower levels of anxiety and depression, higher self-esteem, greater empathy. So this is all science, fact-based research. These are positive benefits of having positive fellowship and meaningful connections with others. Moving on to Hebrews, I think Paul in, in the Gospels is a great example of, or he really shows us how fellowship um, can lead to good things, um, how fellowship can lead to transformation, and how we need to keep building community um, if we're going to bring God's love and light with others. Let's jump into Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 10.23 to 10.25 let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. <clears throat> so, the word hope here is referring to our hope in Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, and we believe that he will come again as Christians. So, we're talking here about holding tightly without wavering, um, holding to that, onto that hope. That's what Paul's discussing here. Um, let us think of ways to motivate. If I had a giant highlighter here, and since I've been a teacher in my past, I just kind of want to underline that with chalk right now. Motivate is a really powerful thing that we do for each other, right? Um, I remember when I was like 24 years old, and I, my roommate was my best friend, Camille, and she was so great at motivating me. Um, if I had had a, a hard day in the classroom teaching the little ones, you know, she would just cheer me up um, with a little treat or a kind word. So motivation, that's big. Um, and motivating each other, not randomly, but towards love and good works, right? We are encouraging each other to, to do good things. Um, and then finally, I want to highlight this meeting together. Um, I'll get to this a little bit later, but meeting together um, helps us not to be isolated and helps us to connect in meaningful ways. Um, Paul really understood that hope and encouragement go hand in hand and that you need to build community in order to kind of fan those flames of hope and encouragement. ...with people that you can't quite put your finger on, um, but another story I just want to share real quick is that Sometimes on Sunday morning, my alarm goes off, and my husband and I are sound asleep, and I, 
it's like, I just don't even want to wake up and go all merch because I'm finally getting a chance maybe to sleep in. And we've just been up all night, let's say, with our two-and-a-half-year-old and our 11-month-old. Um, and we roll out of bed, and I show up at church, and I've got like a nest in my hair and just kind of all over the place. And Kathy, who is a, a regular greeter here, or Miranda, she's another regular greeter, just their smiles um, at the front door mean a lot to me um, and can just kind of transform my whole mood um, and just make me feel better. Um, Kathy will say something like, I love your earrings, Kristen, or uh, you look beautiful today, or, or how was your weekend? Just her caring nature. So that kind of encouragement, those kind of seemingly small acts of kindness or motivation are not small. They really create ripple effects. And I think, too, that Jesus, again, understood that sometimes when you send a little line of light out to another person, it can have a ripple effect. And I'll talk more about that now. Um, in Luke 19, um, 1 through 10, we learn how Jesus um, uses an example of a man named Zacchaeus um, to show how transformation can happen when we take the time to do face-to-face connection with another person um, and also when we do it in a setting where there's food or eating. Um, I really like how in the gospel we see Jesus using food and meals so many times, metaphorically, analogically. He is always showing how when we gather around food, it gives us an opportunity to meet face-to-face, to speak to one another, and ultimately to transform um, into, continue growing into the people that God designed us to be. And a few fish into a feast for thousands, which Jesus did, Um, or whether it's something as simple as a dinner meal, which we see here in Luke. Um, In the story of Jesus and uh, Zacchaeus, basically, Jesus is coming into town. There's crowds of people waiting for him. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he's not well-liked because he would steal money from people, and he would take far more money in taxes than were really required. And so he was disliked um, in his in his community. And the Bible also tells us that Zacchaeus happened to be short. So as per um, his height, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he climbs up into this tree. Jesus is coming into town. And Zacchaeus is calling out to him and trying to get Jesus' attention. And people in the crowd are just saying, just be quiet, Zacchaeus, and trying to shush him. They didn't like him. Um, But Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house for dinner tonight. And the other townspeople are like, what? He, he's not a nice guy. Why is Jesus going to him? But as we see time and time again in the Bible and in Scripture, he is drawn to outsiders, people who the mainstream might cast out. Jesus had so much love. He, there wasn't a single person with a single vice or mistake they had made, or bad personality, or whatever, that Jesus wouldn't come to and help transform. And he showed us this miracle of transformation over and over and over and over again. And it's so inspiring. And what happens here, um, as Luke tells us, um, Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house for dinner, and we imagine that they sat together over a hot meal and talked, 
What we do know is that after that dinner meal together, Zacchaeus said, I am transformed. I am a new man. And I will give back to every person that I've taken money from four times what they gave me. That's amazing. So not only is he saying, I will return the money that I stole, he's saying, I will give it four times over. Um, Back in this day, and knowing the role and authority that a tax collector had, that's an amazing transformation. And I think that it's very topical for us and timely for us right now as we enter into the holiday season, um, as we think about a Thanksgiving meal or maybe a Christmas or New Year's, and we think about how eating together can bring us closer to other people. So maybe just slip that idea in your back pocket. But I think that sharing meals together can be a powerful way to have an important conversation. Um, I'm not going to read through all of the scripture there, but if you want to look in your Bibles um, later, it's Luke 19, 1 through 10. So... What I, the message I want you to hear here, true connection enables and requires our vulnerability. And when we're vulnerable and only then can we feel and experience emotions, anger, whether that's grief, sorrow, anger, um, and ultimately joy, happiness, contentment, peace, um, Brene Brown, who is a really um, amazing slide for, but I wanted to mention, and she says that if we're numbing ourselves and we can't so that we don't feel the the icky feelings, if we're numbing ourselves, whether it's through an addiction or simply blocking things out, if we can't feel so that we don't have to feel the grief, we don't have to feel the trauma that we experienced maybe as a child, we don't have to feel the pain that's happening right now in our marriage or whatever it may be, if we numb those things, then guess what? We also can't possibly feel true joy or true peace. So we have to dive into those dark places in order to heal. And what's really hopeful to know is that when we dive into those dark places with Jesus, who is the light of the world, we can transform and we can be healed. We have to be able to get to those emotionally vulnerable places in a safe space. And that is what fellowship and that is what meaningful connection enables us to do. So some questions to ask yourself. Maybe you're taking notes right now, or maybe you want to just take your phone out and take a photo of the screen, whatever's comfortable for you, or just listen. Um, But in your own life, um, try asking yourself this. Who is in my social orbit? And by orbit, I mean literally like our solar system, right? So there's the sun in the middle with planets orbiting around it. If you're the sun in your own life, if you're a star... Who are the people that orbit around you? Is it, you know, your mom? Is it your spouse? Maybe it's your children, your boss, um, friends. Maybe it's a therapist or your pastor. Who are the, the five people that you feel closest to? Think about that. Who's in your orbit? 
Number two, what happens when I become isolated? And again, different, this is different from you just saying, I need some space, I need some alone time. That's not what I mean. I mean, when you really feel cut off and like you're dealing with some tough stuff and you're feeling like, dang, I am so alone. Nobody knows what I'm going through. This is really hard. And I have no one I can tell. I, can, I have nobody I can talk to about my addiction. I have nobody that I can confide in safely with. If you're feeling isolated like that, what happens? God want for me in my relationships? Hmm. I think this is a very personal question. There's no one size fits all. So that's something for you to think about and maybe pray, pray a little bit about. What does God want for me in my relationships? Number four, in what kind of settings with others do I feel comfortable being myself? Is it at the dinner table when I sit down on Thursday night with my family to have a home-cooked meal? Maybe it's in a therapist's office. Um, Maybe this is a time when you could really use some counsel that's one-on-one in a very safe space, and you need that um, in order to work on being more emotionally vulnerable to heal something. Maybe it's with a therapist or a counselor. Um, Maybe it's over coffee with a friend. Maybe it's over coffee. Um, Maybe it's talking to a pet. And um, I say this because in my 20s, um, when I was feeling quite isolated, a transforming time for me was when I adopted my dog, Penny. And she's a Pomeranian. And she's still with us. And bringing her into my life as a, a single woman was transformative because <clears throat> it kind of softened me and it taught me how to love again. Um, and I think that was really powerful. And it, she was an animal, obviously. So I think that there's a lot of value too in relationships that we may have. Maybe it's a horse if you like to ride or maybe it's a cat. Um, so I don't want to rule that out. Having pets is powerful. Um, As a quick aside, I do want to mention that when I talk about emotional vulnerability, you know, I think it's important to have healthy emotional boundaries as a person that you can and just blah, tell them all of your feelings. Or that you go on a date if you're single and just, you know, share your entire life story all at once. That's not necessarily what I'm advocating here. I think it's important to find a safe space and that when you do share with somebody what you Um, it's with respectful boundaries. Somebody's ready to receive what you have to say. You're ready to share that. Um, Sometimes that takes a long time if you're building a relationship with somebody. Sometimes that can happen a little bit faster if you're, for example, seeing a counselor or in a support group, then maybe you can share a little bit more quickly than if it's a one-on-one, you know, friendship. Um, But that's just important to keep in mind, too. Having healthy emotional boundaries is valuable. Um, But again and again, I think Jesus was reminding us that community is where it's at. Community is where we find ourselves becoming brighter, um, becoming um, the people that God designed us to be. Our gifts come to light oftentimes when we're around people or we have people that are encouraging us or... Or we have people who are telling us the truth. Maybe we have a blind spot, you know, and we needed somebody to say, sister, that isn't working out for you. Maybe go this way instead. Um, We need those relationships. Um, 
I wanted to briefly tell you about a story, which is that for me this summer, um, say like late spring through, through early August, I went through a period of time where I felt really isolated. And for those of you who heard my talk in April about God and mental health, you know that my own life journey, my own relationship with God often um, inspires the talks that I give. And <clears throat> so I wanted to be vulnerable with you and, and share a little bit of that story. Um, as I mentioned, my husband and I have two toddlers, and um, our younger one has pretty severe eczema, um, which means that she scratches pretty much nonstop um, and unfortunately has trouble sleeping. We have various creams and baths that we give her, but uh, until she turns a certain age, we can't really give her, um, you know, internal medication. So it's a bit of a struggle. For me, I started to really um, isolate myself emotionally. Like, I was going through the motions of our routine each week. I have friends. I have extended family. I'm married to a wonderful guy here. Um, but I was not really opening up to other people about how much sadness I had about my, my daughter's eczema, um, how frustrating I was. You know, sometimes I felt angry at my children because I wasn't sleeping, and I was like, why am I feeling angry? They're babies. And I, I wasn't talking to people about that, and I was isolating myself emotionally. Um, but through co some conversations with my husband and by, you know, kind of hitting a rock bottom in early August, to be quite frank, um, I realized that I needed more support. And I'm not, um, I'm not a stranger to therapy and things like that. I've <clears throat> done a lot of therapy in my life, and I've also been in various 12-step and recovery programs, etc. women's support group. And wow, that was a breath of fresh air. It really helped me to stabilize, to have somebody other than my husband to just kind of um, dump all my feelings on because um, I was overwhelming him, just, you know, all of the complaints I had, all of the anxieties I felt I was kind of pushing onto him. And once I joined this support group, I had a safe space and caring people who I could share with um, and that created more balance in my household. So I just wanted to share that story with you as an aside that um, isolation can happen even when you're married or even when you meet with other people. Um, we're not you know, immune to it even if we have people around us. Again, it's about being able to open up about what's going on in a safe space and then to heal through that process. Um, James 5.16, I think, is an appropriate scripture here because it says, um, he's saying, Jesus is saying, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Um, and sins is a bit of a heavy word, but it can be totally appropriate too. Um, I think the message here and how it relates to our conversation today is that whether the hardship is you know, thrown on you or whether you are doing things that are not right or that are harmful. Um, either way, if you're in a hard situation, it really helps to confess that to simply meaning to talk about it, you know, to get it off your chest. Um, and then to pray for each other, to ask God to enter into that challenge. God, can you bring your love? Can you bring your light into this hardship? Because I've done everything I can and I can't do it. My life has become unmanageable. God, I need you 
I need you to come in and help so that I, we can be healed. So I think this is important scripture for us to hold on to. So why does church matter? Why does fellowship matter? Um, Because here, today, right now, God's love reigns supreme. That's why it matters. When I was 25, I wasn't going to church, although I was spiritual and I had been raised Christian, but I had kind of been in and out of church. But I wasn't going to church, and people would say, well, why aren't you going to church? And I said, well, because I don't need church. I, I have a relationship with God. I don't really need to go to church on Sundays. And, you know, I think there's some truth there, a little tiny bit. But um, what I actually found to be the case is that when I turned 27 and started to go back to church, it's easy for me to go through my week or a month or two months and actually have no... Um, visible connection with God, meaning I didn't recognize my connection with God. I didn't pray. I didn't sing worship music. I didn't talk about the Bible. I didn't actually connect to God, even though I said I was a spiritual person. Um, but I, when I turned 27, around the same time, actually, as I got my dog, I started going back to church, and um, there was this lovely older couple that would hold... Um, a dinner at their house like on a Sunday once a month and I just remember showing up to that for the first time and feeling so loved and so warm um, I had been you know working these long you know kind of corporate type hours and <clears throat> just bouncing from one thing to another and it was like just taking a deep breath like ah just showing up to this house, and they had cooked a a home-cooked meal. They had, like, nice lighting on. There was lots of people from the church just kind of milling around, and I felt like I had come home. Um, My family of origin was far away, and I just felt like, wow, God is in the room right now because I am feeling so loved, and this food is so good, (laughs) and this lady is so nice to me. (laughs) Like, this this is what fellowship is about. And honestly, when I come to church here every Sunday now as a married woman, age 35, I feel that same kind of love that I felt when I stepped through those, the doors of that, those people's house at my church when I was 27. So that's the difference, guys. Like, and I'm just speaking from my personal experience. It's just my opinion. Um, but I really found God and connected with God more deeply once I got back into church on a regular basis because of the people, you know? God, God, like, he just works through us. Um, and I think our relationship with God is a felt relationship, you know? You don't, I don't show up to church um, just to, like, hear a message that's entirely cerebral or I want to feel Jesus' love, and I feel that most personally when I'm in communion with you guys, or when I'm in a small group, or when I'm talking to somebody. So our relationship with God is felt. And in Matthew 18.20, uh, I think we have a slide for this. I think this is well said, perhaps a bit more succinct than me. Um, is for where two or three gather in my name, there I am. It's as simple as that. Jesus is saying, where two or three gather in my name, so Basically, he's saying, where more than one person is, there I am. There I am. There is God. 
So I'm going to wrap up, and I want to leave you with an image that I think kind of ties together nicely this message I've shared with you today. Um, This is an image of, and you can close your eyes if that helps you to visualize it. You don't have to, but um, basically it's a dark wood, maybe a dark meadow in the wilderness, and somebody lights one twig or branch on fire, just a small twig with the end burning, and holds it up. So suddenly there's a light in the darkness where before it was just dark. And that's beautiful. And maybe that twig of light is a beacon of hope. Perhaps there's a little trail of smoke coming off of it. Maybe there's even a bit of a scent. Maybe it's a little cedar branch or something like that or pine although pine is a bit hard to get on fire sometimes. Um, But anyway, back to the analogy, you light a single twig and there's a little light, and it means something. But when you add another branch to that, now we start to build a campfire, right? Or maybe we even make it into a bonfire. We throw on some more logs, some more branches, some leaves. Maybe you bunch up some newspaper, ball it up, stick it under there. You get the idea. The more that we come together, we bring our individual light to a group setting. We come together, we shine brighter. Now you have a roaring fire. That warmth can warm 50 people. Um, That light can be seen for 50 yards, maybe. Um, That smoke going up into the sky can be seen for miles community, coming together, bringing your soul light to the table and joining with others. That's what it's all about, and that's what Jesus taught us. He knew after he came out of the Judean wilderness that if he was going to share God's message with the world, if he was going to be the light of the world, he was not going to do it alone. He was not going to do it in isolation. In fact, in isolation, he was most vulnerable to the enemy, He was going to do it with other people. So, with that in mind, I'm going to say a closing benediction, a prayer for us. Um, Then I have a couple announcements, and then I'll get you out of here on your way. All right, would you bow your heads together with me as I pray? Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence for your divine light. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he made. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that this message finds its way into each person's heart in the unique way that you would have them hear it, Lord God. God, I pray for healing where healing is needed. I pray and I lift up each in light. Jesus, that you may work your way into their challenges, into their adversity, into their pain, and that you may bring light where there is darkness, as only you can, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you bestow. We thank you for the many ways that you have already provided abundance in our life. We thank you and are grateful. But we ask for transformation. We ask for transformation in your name, Christ Jesus. We ask for connection to others in meaningful positive and powerful ways. Lord, connect us with the people who will make us into the individuals that join with others so that those gifts can be heard. Lord, we each have gifts. May we join with others so that those gifts can be strengthened. 
May we shine our light into the world. May we make this community a better place. And may we wear love. Jesus, heal us where it's needed. In your precious name, amen.